Today, I'm joined in conversation by Steve Carlson. Steve initially gravitated to the field of psychology to deepen his understanding of himself and his family system. During his career, Steve has worked with children, adjudicated teenagers, people in crisis, and couples as a marriage counselor. But he favors his time working with individuals navigating shelterlessness, mental illness, and substance use disorders. Currently, Steve works as a trainer at the Center for Practice Transformation at the University of Minnesota. His mission is to support other human service professionals in developing their skills and capacity to be fully present with clients who are working towards liberation from whatever prevents them from leading authentic and full lives. So thank you for joining me in this conversation today, Steve. Hey, it's good to be here. So for folks who are listening who are unfamiliar with the Center for Practice Transformation, can you provide a little bit of background about what happens at the Center? Oh, five or six years ago, uh, the state really wanted a center for training and research in mental health and substance use as we've begun to integrate the care for people with serious mental illness and substance use disorders. We realized that we really needed a center of training and research. Mm -hmm. So we got started about five or six years ago with that in mind. You have experience working... Uh, collaborating with CASHU, which is the Center Mm. for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about your experience working with Mm. folks at the center and also your experience working uh, with child welfare. We decided, uh, or CASHU decided, that they really wanted to bring information about recovery from mental illness and substance use disorders within Child Protective Services. A good 30 or 40 percent of people whose kids go on into foster care uh, is a result of parents who have uh, opioid addictions and other uh, uh, problems around substance use and mental illness and really wanted the child protective workers to get a background in understanding the tremendous impact of these disorders uh, on them and to learn a recovery model uh, of growth and change and, and transformation for the people they work with so they can get their kids back and and raise healthy kids. Hmm. And can you describe a little bit of your role in that work? Yeah, for the past few years, uh, along with Karina, uh, we have uh, found counties who are willing to host a series of trainings that include understanding the stages of change, uh, stages of treatment that people with uh, substance use disorders go through around a recovery model uh, that supports people in finding a meaningful life apart Mm -hmm. from uh, their, um, uh, their substance use problem or their mental illness. And we focus uh, in a bit on how to support somebody in uh, getting the help that they need. Uh, And so we've uh, been a few years now where we go out and it's a, uh, uh, we provide a series of trainings around those topics around around in the the counties in Minnesota. The scope of your practice is pretty fantastic. You do a lot of work with uh, within co-occurrence and with um, varying populations of people. Mm -hmm. And the topic of this conversation today is about person-centered practice. And when I think of person-centered, I usually think about language. Um, And that's the practice that we talk about. Um, 
So, for instance, an example that might be relevant to child welfare is rather than labeling someone as an unfit parent, you would describe them um, centering the person first. Mm -hmm. Um, So an example would be a person who has barriers to successful parenting. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we can extend how we think about person-centered language into person-centered practice. How, what are the ways in which we can be person-centered beyond just the use of person-centered language? Uh, Good question. I think it begins, uh, as you said, the words, uh, being person-centered. We focus on that person and that as a person, as a human, and somebody that is seen by us. I think in our work in mental health and substance use and in child protective services, sometimes it's hard just to see the person in front of us because we're so focused in on the challenges around protecting children and this person who is struggling in life with a substance use disorder or mental illness, this it starts with seeing them. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think as humans, we want to be seen. And we want to have somebody that has some compassion and seeks to understand uh, our, our life situation. And so to me, person-centered, we start with seeing that person as humans, one of our greatest needs is a sense of belonging and to mm. be connected to others. And I think when we start uh, with that, uh, with the sense of uh, seeing this as a person as, a, as an individual, as somebody who um, um, doesn't want to be in the situation that they're in, they're struggling in their situation, it really begins there. From there, it goes the, the centered part, I think, as practitioners or as uh, people working in child protective services, we have to keep ourselves centered, mm. ourselves. And to begin coming from a place of, of our own strength, of our own self-care, of our own self-compassion. Uh, and so uh, being centered with someone uh, who is struggling um, uh, provides a sense of, of presence with somebody. And so it becomes a sense of that person-centered care. We are focused on them and their needs. At the same time, we're focused on protecting children. Yeah, and it seems like there's a a balance that you strike in doing that work. Um, and I'm wondering, you speak to being centered yourself mm-hmm. as a clinician, and I'm wondering if you can describe what you do to stay centered. Yeah. Three things, actually. Uh, glad you asked that because... Uh, Three things. One is before I ever meet with someone, I set an intention for what do I want to bring from myself to be with that person. And I set an intention on my way if I'm driving or if I am in my office. I'll set an intention for I am going to be uh, present here. Mm. And so it starts with setting an intention. Secondly, to pay attention. I am going to be I am going to attend to this person and seeking first to understand them. And then hopefully they will want to understand where I'm coming from as well. Hmm. It's, a, it's a quality of listening to understand and not so much listening to respond. Hmm. Uh, listening to understand is much more f- uh, uh, pre- uh, the first thing that we do. Listen to, to understand and then, and then how we're going to respond. So it's setting an intention. 
to mm-hmm. pay attention, and finally, uh, attitude, to have a particular attitude of curiosity, an attitude of kindness, an mm-hmm. attitude of acceptance. I may not like the behavior that has happened at all. I might feel very defensive towards children or protective of children, but I want to be uh, extend that person-centered kindness to the person that I'm meeting with. Mm-hmm. So intention, attention, and uh, attitude. How do you hold how do you hold both? Because I think the experience of feeling protective of children mm-hmm. is inherent to all of us. As clinicians, we you know, we operate within the context of ethics that yeah. are regulated yeah. by a board. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate that duality of recognizing that there are certain things, there's a certain mm-hmm. scope with which we have to operate within mm-hmm. and that generally people, there's like this assumption that people are inherently good and they don't want to do harm. Their circumstances might yeah. be manifesting something. Um, it's uh, it's a great question. Uh, you know, as you identified earlier, uh, I uh, worked for many years with people who live homeless. Mm-hmm. And I remember having this moral dilemma when someone would come to me who needed shelter and I couldn't provide shelter. There wasn't bed space for them. And this moral dilemma of I needed to say, uh, sorry, we don't have a bed for you. You have to sleep outside again tonight. There was this horrible dilemma around what do I do with this bind that I find myself. Mm -hmm. I think for child protective workers, the bind of providing support to someone who is struggling with uh, significant life difficulties and protecting their children is a moral dilemma mm-hmm. that can only be solved by um, an integration of not a, it's not even a balance. I am integrating an ability to be compassionate in the midst of violence or what I you know violent acts that have occurred or neglectful uh, behavior. Mm-hmm. I am able to be present to both the protection of the child and uh, and a compassion towards this person, but it has takes us out of um, dualistic thinking. Uh, dualistic thinking would say that there's somebody good and there's somebody bad, or there's somebody mm-hmm. right, there's somebody wrong. These situations are so messy and so integrated and so um, complicated and nuanced. Yes, yes that uh, it, it, takes, um, it takes an incredible ability on our own part. And child protective workers that I've seen that have been in the field a long time have learned it. Mm. Um, people burn out pretty quickly in this field. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, two, three, four years is oftentimes a standard stay within working in child protective services. The only ones I've seen that have been able to get through that have either become so burned out and so tired <laughs> that they just are doing their, their job in an encapsulated way, or they have learned how to be able to um, integrate both compassion for the, uh, the parent and protection for the child, which is a whole new way of talking about being person-centered uh, in our work. We're being person-centered toward the parent and we're being person-centered towards the child in accepting both where they're at, mm-hmm. doing everything we can do and need to do to protect the child while being compassionate towards uh, 
and and uh, and setting limits doesn't mean we don't set limits. We speak the truth. Mm-hmm. We have to speak what is true. This mm-hmm. is what's going to happen. Uh, your child will be taken away for a period of time. We will work together to be able to figure out how you can, you know, work on the stuff you need to work on through treatment or whatever it is that's going to be, whatever the judge says, and uh, we're going to figure out both of these things. Well, and I think even the way you describe that work feels like more of a collaboration than a power differential. It's not exacerbating that power differential of I have all of the control over what happens in this really tenuous situation um, that feels really stressful and like we're going to work on trying to come to a solution that serves everybody. I think when, uh, as child protective workers go into a situation, if they find themselves in a power struggle, uh, is learning how to roll with that resistance, sort of that motivational interviewing language around collaboration. Mm -hmm. It really ought to be more of a dance than a wrestling match. I realize setting limits with people can feel like a wrestling match. But if I'm not emotionally in that wrestling match, I'm simply setting boundaries. This is Mm -hmm. what has to happen. Mm -hmm. This is what the judge ordered. This is what we need to do. And I'm going to still work with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, a person's going to be defensive. They're going to be mad. They're going to be – but we can still stay present to that in a person-centered way, still attuned to the spirit inside of them that wants to get their child back, Mm -hmm. that wants to return things back to a, a healthy way of living and where they can nurture and take care of their child. I guess I'm curious, in all of your years of working, you've probably encountered people who do person-centered practice really well and others who don't. And Mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious what has brought you to this point. What have you done personally to sort Mm -hmm. of get to the place where you can hold that duality Mm -hmm. in a way that's nourishing and permits you to keep doing this work long term? I went into this field uh, really to fix my own family and figure <laughs> myself out. Um, my graduate research uh, was on, do those of us in this helping profession, do we need to pursue our own therapy in order to be good counselors or good caregivers or good human service providers? And the overwhelming uh, uh, evidence came from people that had done their own work, said, yes, it's really, we, yeah. we've got to do our own work. Mm-hmm. I think having a, a commitment to personal growth and transformation uh, mm-hmm. is really um, the way that it happens. Uh, you know, when I first uh, was graduated with my uh, doctorate, uh, uh, I, they had taught me really well how to look like I cared. Hmm. Like looked like I was listening, and I had it all down. I leaned sixty percent forward and oh, wow. <laughs> nodding. All the minimal encouragers. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I know how hard that is for you. And I learned all the right words, hmm. but literally took me five years to become a regular human being once again, hmm. where I could be more genuine and authentic. Hmm. I think being on a personal growth path is uh, makes us good human beings, which makes us good counselors. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of skill needed as well, a lot yeah. of tools um, that are very important. But the tools in tandem with that authenticity. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, That's where real connection yeah. happens. And I think learning from people that live in the, in the, in the sort of the bottom of, of our success ladders in our society, people that live homeless with serious mental illness, they taught me a lot of lessons about how to be real, how to be genuine 
mm-hmm. how to not to have a lot of uh, pretense or yeah, you know, that just, humility. Yeah, yeah. So they were my teachers. Hmm. If you encountered a worker who wanted to do that personal growth, what advice or suggestions would you have for them? Well, the first thing is simply to have an awareness that that's what I want to do and set an intention and a plan uh, or a uh, an intention to be about growing. And with that is simply uh, learning to observe oneself, observe my reactivity, and to mm-hmm. become conscious of my own reactions because they happen all the time. Maybe in a staff meeting you react to a coworker uh, that you don't like very much. This is an opportunity to be able to explore your own reaction to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it really begins there uh, mm-hmm. is, is doing that. And, of course, if you have uh, – some kind of uh, of a meditative practice, uh, some way where you can just be present to yourself, to be quiet, and to have periods of, of quiet and solitude and, and meditation is very helpful to learn to get in touch with this crazy jungle mind that jumps from <laughs> topic to topic to topic so fast. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be present to our clients in fullness if we can't really be present to our own thoughts and our own emotions as they arise. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly psychotherapy can be very helpful. We all know from the ACEs study that uh, 60-some percent of us have at least uh, an ACE score of an adverse child experience of mm-hmm. one, and mm-hmm. that has been a uh, something that's contributed to our, our own way of being in the world. And so being able to explore our own histories. With that curiosity, extending that curiosity to ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the inner observer, the inner witness, the part of us that can observe those things. Hmm. Embodying this ethos of being person-centered, you know, it extends beyond language. What you're talking about is like a personal philosophy almost, like how you show up in the world. Hmm. Transcends language is how it sounds. You're talking about this philosophy that shows up in on, on a deeper level than just through communication. If people are unable to tap into that um, sort of person-centered ethos, what's mm-hmm. the potential harm that could happen? Psychodynamic psychology describes it as transference and countertransference. You know, we have a reaction to somebody in the child protective work. For example, somebody reminds us maybe unconsciously of our uh, a parent or a teacher that – shamed us in class or a student, we were bullied or something, if, uh, uh, if we are reminded of that, we act that way. I, my father was an alcoholic, and I remember as a therapist many years ago, one of the first families I met with, the dad was an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and the mom came in and two kids, and the father was a closet alcoholic, just like my dad was. Hmm. And I remember having a hard time collaboratively having a discussion about this man's uh, drinking because I was bringing my own uh, projections into the session. Mm. Um, and it was helpful for me to see that and get supervision around that to say, oh, you know, this is a reenactment of my own history. Mm. And so I think to be truly person-centered, we have to be aware of our own reactions and our own reenactment um, in part because, you know, we, we know from um, – trauma-informed care, that the reenactment of a persecutor, a victim, mm-hmm. and a rescuer, this triangle that, that happens, we can easily become 
involved in that in child protective services where we are trying to rescue a child and persecuting a parent hmm. um, and they're feeling then victimized by us. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to stay outside of that triangle. Mm-hmm. And I think if we aren't uh, practicing this ethos of being person-centered and and being able to do that genuinely, I mean, we can look like we're person-centered. We can have all the tools. And, of course, in person-centered thinking and practice and planning, there's lots of tools that can mm-hmm. be used. But if it's not genuine, our clients will know it, and they won't trust us. And trust is crucial. Yeah. Uh, our clients have to know that we're there both to protect their child and to support them in their recovery. They have to know that. And, and change, transformation requires an absolutely safe environment uh, or we, we, we tend not to change very much. Yeah. It's safety for the child as well as safety for the parent, both. Yeah, and I think there's, there's a literal idea of safety, but then there's also creating contexts that are safe despite intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. and this experience of a history of trauma that exists. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, there's the actual literal safety, but beyond that, creating safe environments mm-hmm. that recognize that there's a history of trauma that exists. Right. Well, there's really four kinds of safety. We're talking about the physical safety, but we're talking about social safety mm-hmm. in that relationship with our client. We're talking about psychological safety where the parent is able to keep themselves safe and be able to speak what is true for them. And, uh, and then moral safety, which we brought up around this moral dilemma about how do we protect a child mm-hmm. <laughs> as well as support somebody in their recovery. I mean, there's that moral safety where you know, we want to be able to practice that ourselves. So for workers who listen to this and feel moved to want to do that mm-hmm. interpersonal insight building work. Mm-hmm. Can you point those individuals to resources that you have found to be helpful? Mm. You know, you could probably begin by reading Brene Brown. She has a number of TED Talks and conversations. I think Brene Brown is really a spokesperson right now for being able to be vulnerable mm-hmm. with ourselves and learning how to do that with each other in our relationships. She uh, is able to describe really well her own vulnerability, and she does so in a humorous way uh, because uh, it's, it's good we can laugh at ourselves, you yeah. know, at our own sort of funny ways of being <laughs> in the world and our own failures. Yep. Uh, I was with my uh, two first-grade grandkids three weekends ago, <laughs> and everything was going so smooth. I thought, I'm just the greatest grandfather in the world. <laughs> They're all getting along. Well, by Sunday, they were at each other. And, uh, and I remember a moment when I was cleaning up um, my grandson's throw up from the night before that I, um, I, I lost it with him. You know, mm-hmm. just like, you know, they were fighting over a toy gun that I'd given them, you know, mm-hmm. this Nerf gun. Mm-hmm. My granddaughter had bit it and broke one of the bullets and he was complaining. They were at <laughs> I literally lost it says, give me the effing gun, I said to him. And I <laughs> literally, you know, <laughs> said that to my grandkids. I'm going, oh, my God, did I just say that to my grandkids? Now it's, you know, it's like, you know, it gave us a chance to kind of work it through. We began to practice some of our, you know, emotional conversations around how to <laughs> deal with conflict. But we got to be able to laugh at ourselves and be, be vulnerable and be able to say, you know, I make a lot of mistakes. Yeah, be human. Human. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, we probably call it human-centered practice mm. as well as person-centered. might even be add a little bit of the sense of humanity and that we are all human, yeah. which means we're all flawed. 
Steve, it's been a total joy talking to you, and I'm so grateful for your willingness to have this conversation. I enjoyed it myself very much. So thanks, uh, Katie, for inviting me in. Thank you for all of your insight and your wisdom on this topic of being person-centered. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.